Welcome to the sermon podcast from Compass Church. In this sermon from December 26, 2021, Pastor Craig Kidder preaches from John 15, 9-16 and teaches us how Jesus gives us a different model for how we are to be transformed. For more information, please visit compasscfc.com. Welcome to church the day after Christmas. Uh, one of the things, I, I love stand-up comedy. I, like The mechanics of public speaking, I've probably learned more about preaching from stand-up comedy than anything. So uh, there's this thing that comedians do. But don't worry, I'm not trying to be funny or tell jokes. That's not what's coming. It's like, hey, I'm working on new material. That's not, you can relax. Um, but uh, comedians, one of the things they do is when they, they have new ideas and new material, hasn't really been worked out publicly, so they go to like clubs and they work it out. So my life has been transformed and is being transformed by what I'm about to tell you. And what I'm about to tell you is also informing kind of our North Star of where we headed as a church. And so I want to just kind of work some of this out with you. And because part of that is because the day after Christmas is not really a great day to launch something new. Like we're still kind of comatose from all the food my mother-in-law fed me last night. And like we're all kind of like, what? Like it's like, all right, let's do this next thing. It's like, no, we need to like pause. So this morning I just want to pause and kind of look at the foundation that's shaping what we do. And, and really, we're trying to answer the question this morning, how do people change? How is it that people change? And so, over the past year, I've been growing a lot and being informed by something, and I kind of wanted to see, is this stuff ready to be shared with? Is, is there anything we can get from this? So, uh, here's just my question for you this morning, all right? What, what business is church, what business are we in as a church? Scott, you know, I'm trying to like, you know, you build some suspense here. Oh, sorry. No, that's great. What business are, what is it that churches do? All right. Here, I can, I, I'll still build suspense and Scott will have no idea where I'm trying to go, so he can't ruin it. All right. But what is it, what, okay, how do we measure success Right? Okay, so you know, if you've been around here at all, like our, our vision statement, we want to be a place where Christ's love is at work transforming lives. Love that. Great, right? It's not Christ's rules, information about Christ. It's Christ's love at work transforming lives. How do we know if we're doing that? How do we measure that, right? Like, can you measure that? Is it... You know, some churches go the route of numbers. Is it, all right, we know that we're really nailing this. If we've got tons and tons of people, you know, as they say in the church world, butts in seats, all right? We know we're doing this because we've got lots of butts in seats, all right? We are nailing our mission. We, we, it's fruit, you know, we don't say that. We say it's fruitful, it's being blessed, right? But how do we know that we're actually doing the work of transformation, Right? How, how, how do we know that we're doing this? Like, let me just tell you, there's two stories that I've experienced that have kind of, I think, have really highlighted this problem in churches all around the country. You know, I've had the privilege of living lots of places in this country. I lived in New England, New York, California, Kentucky, now Missouri. I've lived all over. And like, yes, each region is better than the other region. Um, and each people are wildly unique there, but, and, not but, and, people are kind of the same everywhere you go, all right? And there's like two stories that I've experienced that kind of get at this question, of like, what is transformation, and how do we actually know that we're doing it? 
Uh, and story number one, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a problem that I've seen, like, everywhere I've gone. I've, I've seen it. I've lived it. I've experienced it. And uh, it's that problem of, like, when someone becomes a Christian up front, there's tons of fire. There's tons of energy. It's like, wow, that person is on fire for Jesus. They just got saved. Boom, they're off to the races. Uh, I got to pastor this guy named Leno. And Leno it was, I mean, like if you grew up in the church, Leno had that kind of testimony that makes us who grew up in the church insecure, right? His life was sex, drugs, rock and roll. And then one night, bam, just like transformed by Jesus. And I'm not exaggerating. I'm not joking. In the month that I knew Leno, he invited more people to church in that month than I have my entire life. And I mean, people that came, like I can't imagine he was just everybody he met would come to church with me. It was insane, right? And if you've been around church, for any amount of time, you know what's coming next, right? Oh, just wait, Leno. Give it a couple years and you'll be like the rest of us. Super uh, joyless, but we're disciplined, all right? You've got, you've got the fire, but we've got the discipline. So just wait a couple years, Leno. You'll be just like us, right? And he, that, I've seen that everywhere, everywhere. And the question is, is that the design of this whole thing? Like, is that how church is supposed to work? There's tons of fire up front and then just hang out for a little bit and get crotchety and wait till heaven? Like, is that, is that the design of this, this institution? Story number two happened here. I met a man who had been through a lot, a lot. He's sitting in my office and he's broken. What brought him to my office was a recent divorce and a, just a nasty like experience on the back end, fighting over alimony and money and then his wife's new boyfriend, kids, and as a result, experiencing this, you know, this upheaval, kids acting out, and he's trying to pour into his kids. His kids are making bad decisions. He's like really trying to navigate what in the world I'm supposed to do. And I remember, I won't ever forget this. This guy's in my office. He's broken. He's tired. And he says to me, I totally believe that God loves me and I'm going to heaven when I die. But what do I do between now and then? Like, is it just a crapshoot? Like, is it, can I count on anything? Like, what, I, I, I'm loved, I'm safe, we're good to go. But like, what about the rest of this stuff? Right, like, I'm trying to honor Jesus and love Jesus, and just, it's not, this is not working. What do I do? And that again. Maybe your experience. What, what, do you say, what do you say to someone struggling with that? What are you like, yeah, just hang in there. It gets better, right? We hear stuff like that and we pray and hope for the best. Maybe give them a book or something, right? Is that the design of this institution we call the church? What are churches supposed to do and are, what does transformation look like and why aren't we seeing very much of it? Uh, if you remember back to uh, Jesus' parting words, his parting words, go, make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. All right? And so, okay, that's two parts, right? We've got making disciples, right? Baptizing them. All right, so we're going to make disciples and we're going to teach them to obey everything Jesus said. All right, so... Now, what do we do with these people who are energetic and then these people who are like just, they run into the brick wall of life? What hope does transformation have for them? Part of the reason, I believe, 
part of the reason we have run into this brick wall is because, and this is the part I haven't talked about publicly, and you just be gracious, we're working with medieval psychology and enlightenment values. You're welcome. We'll, uh, does anyone have, know the doxology? We'll see you next week. All right. Part of the problem, part of the problem, why we're not seeing transformation in churches is because we are working with medieval psychology and enlightenment values. Okay, what in the world do I mean by that? All right, it can be described, we'll unpack it. It can be described with this phrase. Transformation occurs when you have good information plus right ideas, right choices. All right, let me say it again. Transformation happens when you have good information plus good choices. Then we see transformation. That is the working model I was taught from in seminary. People just need good information, and then they need to make the right choices, and then boom, we'll start seeing transformation. That's not true, though. It, and, and like, I hope you hear me say that is not true, all right? That's not actually how people transform. That is medieval psychology combined with enlightenment values. Let me unpack that for just a second. Thomas Aquinas, who is a medieval theologian, uh, if you read any of his works, we love Thomas Aquinas. I call myself a Thomist, which he's Thomas, right? A, a super great guy. We're totally swimming in waves he created, all right? But like a problem that he had was in the medieval ages, a huge part of what it meant to be a person was you were someone with a will, all right? And the will was seen as central. And so what do we need to do? We need to train the will. We need to work on our will, and we change our will so that we start obeying God and loving God. So you need to work on willpower. And so that's part of the reason why you start to see, like, this monastic tradition take off. You start to see, like, hermits, because my will is crazy. Ah, I got to get away from people and really work on my will. So I go out of society, and I'm working on my will, and what happens is I'm working on my will, and oh, man, as I start to work on it, it gets worse and worse and worse. So what happened was you have all these communities of people, let's go be hermits. And then, in an oversimplification of history, hermits, it was a very dangerous thing to be a hermit. There's wolves and coyotes out there. So hermits were like, ah, let's be like hermits, and then we'll build a wall around these hermits, and we'll have other hermits, and that's where monks come from. Again, oversimplification of history. But it's coming from this medieval understanding of what it meant to be a person. The most important thing we're trying to work on in personhood is our will. We want to bend our will to trust God. Which again, you have a will, but here's the thing. If you read scripture, the Bible doesn't, the Bible talks a lot about will, but it's not our will. The Bible talks a lot about God's will. But then in the medieval tradition, they're like, no, we need to bend our will because they were operating with their understanding of what it meant to be a person. Let's bend our will to love God. The problem with that, now that we know what both, I think, a better understanding of scripture and understanding science, willpower is limited. So this is also a public apology to our staff. Uh, I don't let candy in the office, okay? Um, I don't let candy in the office because willpower is limited. So like I, have, I wake up in the day, I'm like, I'm not going to eat candy. And so I walk by that giant bowl of candy. I'm like, ha-ha, I did it, nailed it. I, I, this has been a great day. Awesome. But you know when I start eating candy? As the day goes on because I'm running out of willpower. That's not an information problem. I know I shouldn't be eating candy. 
right? I'm like, oh, you know, I don't want to eat this because I'm going to hang out with people later. There's going to be snacks there. I'm definitely going to eat there. And so, but it's, I ran out of willpower. And you know what? Those people that went to the desert stayed in the desert, right? They didn't hit a point where they're like, man, I've got this under control. We're good to go. When they were trying to bend their will, they kept, ah, we're bending our will. Enlightenment values. That, that idea, that psychology carries forward to the enlightenment where reason becomes chief, all right? Reason. And there were some, if you read back through church history, there were some church fathers saying, this is a mistake. Do not make reason chief. And, the, and then the enlightenment fathers were like, nope, reason, it's all about reason. To where we find ourselves today, we have medieval psychology, let's change the will, and let's reason, let's get people right information so they know the truth. Because if they know, if they have the right information, they can then make right decisions and bend their will. The problem with that, I want you to think about the most recent political argument you got into. Don't worry, I am not going to get into a political argument with you this morning. But just think about a political argument you've gotten yourself into. The person on the other end of the table, you are giving them a ton of information and they're not listening. Right? You're like, no, here's why you need to agree with me. This is why your side is so terrible. It doesn't work. It's the same way people don't get swept up into cults because they're like, oh, I heard a reasoned argument for why the world is ending because the flying saucer is going to pass by and so I need to give these people all my money. That's super reasonable. Perhaps something else is going on. Perhaps people are wired a little bit differently. Enter Jesus in John 15. Jesus is pre-enlightenment. Jesus is pre-medieval period. He has a different understanding of how people work and how people change. And so if we really are in the business of transformation, please, that's a radical statement, all right? When we say we're in the business of transformation, all right, we're, not, we're saying we're not in the business of institutional stability. We are not in the business of build it bigger, better, faster, or build it for forever. Like, let's make sure, let's spread the name of Compass. Like, that's not the business we're in. Like, I'm using that term really crassly, by the way. We're not in business at all. We are in the business of transformation. We are in the business of this being a place where Christ's love is at work transforming lives. That's the focus. That sets the agenda. That sets the priority. But what do we mean when we say that, and how does that actually look in real life? Uh, a very wise person who's sitting in this room said to me earlier this week, a lack of clarity today results in frustration tomorrow. So if we're not clear today, we will be frustrated tomorrow. So we want to be a place where Christ's love is at work transforming people. What does that mean? What are we doing? Are we doing it? How do we know we're doing it? How do we know we're not doing it? How does that help us decide priorities? How does that help us set agendas? How does that be a north star to when, like, look, life keeps coming at us, but this is what we do? I told this story in a members meeting. So for, if you were there and this is redundant, forgive me. Uh, but they were doing a study uh, in Central Florida with Marines and professional athletes. And they're trying to see the power of group identity, all right? So the professional athletes, they, the theory was they're just focused on results. Get a good time, 
complete the obstacle course faster. Marines, they, they do focus on results to an extent, but they're primarily focused on uh, a group identity, right? They have mantras, right? Never leave a soldier behind, all these things, right? They're focused on group identity. So how do these two people react in the same situation? So what they did was they created an obstacle course for these folks to run through, and during the swimming portion of this obstacle course, they had a fake alligator come up out of the water, okay? And so nobody knows what's happening. They just thought, okay, this is, we're just trying to get a good time. We're trying to build a big church, right? We're trying to get results. We want more people to be reached, right? Which we do, all right? Please don't hear me say, all right, we can just, I'm not saying that. But we, if we focus on results, all right, that's the point of this illustration, so, the, the Marines are off in a different location. They're not watching. The professional athletes take off. They get to the swimming portion, and the alligator comes up. What do the professional athletes do? Anyone who's in the meeting? Scream and run away. All right? Scream and run away. That's right. The Marines, though, it's their turn. They didn't see this. All right? They're just told they want to have a good time. So, they, they get into the water. They're racing. The alligator comes up. What do the Marines do? They don't even skip a beat. They look, they swim toward the alligator, then they start laughing. Why is that? It's the power of a group identity. This is who we are. It's what we do. Who is compass? Who are we and what do we do when things come at us? When people come at us like, hey, my life's falling apart, do we just pray and hope for the best? Or do we have, a, okay, here's who we are, here's what we do. What's our group identity? Jesus, in uh, one of his, in John's gospel, on the, the night he's betrayed, he's giving all these teachings and instructions. And one of the things he does is he, he, is basically cultivating the soil for growth for his disciples. See, the problem with medieval psychology and enlightenment values is that it, it doesn't necessarily cultivate soil for growth. But what Jesus is doing, right before he's about to be betrayed, is he's come, he brings his disciples together and he's cultivating soil for growth. Because here's soil for unstable growth. All right, for unstable growth, if you have a low joy environment, if you have shallow uh, relational attachments, an unstable identity and weak community, that is soil for unstable growth. You might grow. You might. It just really, it's just unstable. I mean, we just hope for the best, right? And sometimes when you hope for the best, the best happens. But I don't know if that's really a model for how you want to do things. It's like, hey, how do you disciple people around here? How do you pursue transformation? We just hope for the best. Yeah, like there's real problems people have, and uh, we take that very seriously by when they bring those problems to us, we just hope for the best. No. What, what's the model that Jesus lays out for us for how we are to pursue transformation? And then how does that model become our North Star, become central to what we do? How does that build an identity? Well, Here's where we're going. I think this is the soil for growth that Jesus is cultivating with his disciples in John 15. High joy. The human brain is wired to seek joy. All right? That's what fundamentally addiction is. It's pseudo-joy. Deep relational attachments. 
We have people who know us and care. A strong group identity. I know who I am and what we do. I mean, that's, that's why politics is taking off in this country and becoming a pseudo-religion is because they're really strong group identities. We are Republicans, we say these words. We are Democrats, we say these words, right? That's a strong group identity. And then strong community. You've got people that will help you empty water out of your basement. You've got people you know you can call when you are in a pinch. These, this is the soil for growth. Because here's, here's, again, we don't grow by good information plus right decisions, okay? We primarily grow by joy and loving attachments. We connect ourselves to something bigger than ourselves and we go the way that thing goes, right? You're like, man, how can people just, like, they, they, you know, like we had, I met a guy who spent $50,000 on Scientology. 50000 with a T, all right? 50, that's an insane amount of money on Scientology. You're like, this is a person of sound mind. How in the world would they spend so much money on Scientology? Well, he attached himself to a group that said, we can give you meaning and purpose. And he believed them. He's like, yeah, this, these are my people. They're not, no, this is who we are. This is what we do, all right? Tragically, he did not attach himself to a loving group. Don't come after me, Scientologists. They're scary folks. We believe that this is exactly how Jesus is modeling discipleship in John chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, that's where we're going to be. I think Jesus is orienting our lives around two things, love and joy. Jesus is orienting our lives around two things, love and joy. When we first hear this passage, we are going to probably read it with medieval psychology and enlightenment values, all right? If you obey, if you love me, obey. Like, okay, I gotta just now bend my will to do this. But listen really carefully to how Jesus is trying to motivate us. It's through joy and loving attachment. So John chapter 15 is where we're gonna be. We're gonna be in John chapter 15, starting in verse nine. John chapter 15, starting in verse nine. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Uh, I, one of the Psalms says that the Messiah will be anointed with joy. All right? Jesus was a, a fundamentally joyful person. And listen to what he's saying. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you. Woo! My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. 
I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I've learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is the word of the Lord. Father, Father, we need your help. God, if, if we confess, we've all been really frustrated at times with our growth. The desire is there, Lord. The will is there. We want to grow. But man, so many times we just feel like we're bumping up against a joyless, discipline without delight environment. God, help us, to, help us to see how you want us to grow, your path for transformation, your path for change. God, I pray that we would be people who make love and joy the centerpieces of our lives, the foundation of our relationship with you. Ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is reorienting his followers' life around joy and love in two different ways. Two different ways. First, he gives them really, really, really good news. Like these original disciples heard this and probably just took a huge deep breath. All right? He gives them fantastically great news. And he says it, it's, he says it, it echoes it in verse uh, 16, right? He says, you know, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go and, and what? Bear fruit. Okay, that's really huge. Bear fruit. Fruit that will last. Jesus is giving good news. Hey, you're going to bear fruit. Why are they going to bear fruit? Well, let's back up and see the context a little bit. John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. That is fantastically great news to someone living in Palestine in the first century. When Jesus comes and says, I am the vine, he is preaching great news. What he is fundamentally saying is God has done for you what you could never do for yourself. What? A vine was the working metaphor for Israel. Israel, and throughout the Old Testament, again and again, is compared to a vine. And the problem, the reason the prophets come is because that vine wasn't bearing fruit. So if you think back to Isaiah 5, Isaiah tells a story about a guy who buys a field and he works really hard. He clears out all the rocks and he plants a vineyard and it's got grapes and he's like, fantastic, I can't. And he eats one of the grapes and it literally says it was a vomit grape. It was, oh, this is gross. It looks all right, but it's gross. Think about John the Baptist, when the Pharisees show up and they're watching him, and he said, what does he say to them? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. They're playing on this national identity, this idea of like, we're supposed to be a vine, we're supposed to bear fruit. And there's no place that that's clearer than Psalm chapter 80. All right, listen to this. Psalm 80, uh, this is verse 7, 8. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Isn't that interesting? And then they tell Israel's story from the perspective of a vine. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it later in that chapter. 
Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted. The sun you have raised up for yourself. The vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your right hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. And now Jesus shows up and says this, Israel has had prophet after prophet saying you're not bearing fruit. Jesus himself curses a fig tree because it wasn't bearing fruit. And now Jesus shows up and says this, I am the vine. I have done for you what you could never do for yourself. I'm the one that's going to bear fruit. You just need to be connected to me and I'll bear fruit through you. Amazing. That's good news. The gospel absolutely is a message that there is life after death. The gospel, though, that good news also is that life starts when we meet Jesus. And that life is him working through us, bearing fruit through us. If we abide in him, if we remain in him, as the enemy says, you will bear much fruit. Now, this is, this is the, the, just the, the pointlessness of just our own lives, right? We cannot command ourselves to bear fruit. But, all right, I'm going to bear fruit. Here we go. Ready? <laughs> Nothing will come. How do we bear fruit, though? How do we actually start to see transformation and things changing? Remain in me. A loving attachment to Jesus. All right? Not right information, and good choices. Do you need, please don't misunderstand me, do you need right information and good choices? Definitely, definitely, definitely. That's not fundamentally how Jesus sees transformation taking place in the life of his disciples. It's not fundamentally how we're wired as people. We are not, as the philosopher James K.A. Smith says, brains on a stick. We're people with emotions and experiences. We're relational people. We're meant to be connected. We're not meant to be isolated. We're meant to be connected to life-giving sources. And now Jesus is saying this. He's saying that if we see ourselves and him differently, we can experience change. Branches derive life from the vine, and the vine produces fruit through the branches. That's amazing. He is our life source, and we need to be connected to this life source. So he's cultivating soil for stable growth. He's even saying, you'll bear a ton of fruit. He's cultivating deep relational attachments. Our identity, who we are, is found in our relationship to Jesus. If we abide, we will bear fruit. He's cultivating soil for growth, for transformation. Look at verses 9 and 11. 9 through 11. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Angela Duckworth uh, wrote this fantastic book. I think it's called Grit. And it's about, like, we need grit to be successful in life. We need discipline, right? Like, you know, think about any great artist, 
like Hemingway sat down and was just wrote. And a legend has it that Hemingway worked on timers, and when the timer went off, he would just leave the work mid-sentence sometimes. He was fundamentally disciplined. But discipline without delight is drudgery, is what Angela Duckworth tells us. Discipline without delight is drudgery. And we can see that throughout church history. We read church history and you read about people who moved out to the desert and they, they like, this one guy, he lived on a pole, like he, he made a six foot tall pole and he lived up there. And you're like, why? Well, he's thinking with medieval like, psychology, I've got to train my will to love God. So I'm going to live on this pole in the desert. And it also became fashionable to show people how righteous you were. And then what happened was the six foot pole was like, not the super sexiest way to like get around. So he made a 60-foot pole and lived on top of a 60-foot pole. And legend tells us that when worms were eating his flesh up there, you know, this is like pre-sunscreen days, worms were eating his flesh, he, tur- he picked up, his disciples said he picked up one of the worms and said to it, may you eat the food God has given you. And he puts it back to eat more of his flesh. You're like, how in the world can this happen? Because people are really, really, really committed to this idea of like, if I just try hard enough, God will be pleased. We have to fundamentally sever that from, the, from its life source. I mean, look, look where that carried that guy. I mean, he's talking to worms eating his body. He's like, God must like pain because I'm working really hard to honor him. God must be super honored by this. No, there's a, what if there's another way? Are you open to another perspective here? What if, what if you're actually, you have, what we're watching here is you have already attached yourself, man living on a pole. You've attached yourself to a community that says, hey, how do you get credibility in this community? You suffer for God. And you're just doing what your community tells you. What if Jesus is saying, hey, abide in me. Let's create this new Jesus community. And here's what we do and here's what we value. What do we value? Let's keep reading. He says this, uh, If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. This is where some of us can get tripped up. The word obedience has so much baggage in our culture. So much baggage. And it's not just for people under 40. All right? All of us. Who, who are you to tell me what? I'm not listening, right? It's just, it's just in, it's in the, it's in the Cracker Jack box, all right? It's just, we have a problem with obedience. And so now we hear Jesus saying, all right, you need to obey. And that's how you remain in my love. How do you remain in my love? You obey. So there's some of us, right? Okay, great. Time to try harder. And there's others of us who are skeptical of this. But listen really carefully to what he says. Remember verse nine. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Remain in my love. The goal is to remain in love. How do we remain in love? Obey. The heart of Jesus' commands are not do this to please me. It's, hey, we are so prone to go astray. We're so prone to make sense of our life, our own wisdom. This is how God is saying, and when life doesn't make sense, trust me, because it's coming from a place of love. It's coming from a loving father. It's coming from a loving attachment. It's also, as he says in verse 11, it's for our joy. Joy. High joy societies. Part of the reason why, as communities, we don't want to be around each other is because there's a long gap in the first time we experience joy to now. 
So it's like, man, this used to be a happy place. What happened to all that joy, right? I'm not saying that about Compass. I'm just, you know, family Thanksgiving, right? It's like, man, Thanksgiving's hard. Why? Because we haven't experienced joy as a family in a while. We're a low-joy community. And that just sucks all the energy out for growth. You have a high-joy community, though. Man, we're off to the races when it comes to growth. As a church... Jesus' parting words for this Jesus movement, what he said to us in verse 11 was, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. He is setting a priority for us. We are to be people who pursue building a high joy culture. Why? Because without joy, we will not grow. Like we might go through the motions, but we're not going to really experience transformation. Joy is how we grow. He's actually orienting our lives around joy and love. Verses 12, 13, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friend. How do we, what's the mark, what's the mark of a disciple? How do you know, how do we know we're doing our job when it comes to transformation? Do we spontaneously love our enemies? That's it. Do we spontaneously love our enemies? That's the mark of a disciple. And you can see that throughout church history. You can see that Jesus, he's on the cross, he's dying. What does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen, when he's getting stoned, what does he do? Same thing. Spontaneous love for enemies. Church history tells us all kinds of stories about that's how the apostles died, through spontaneous love for their enemies. I got to be really careful how I say this, okay? I would never, I'm ne- I never would criticize Cardinal fans, okay? <laughs> I really think I'm, I'm not pandering to, to a, a Cardinal fan base, okay? I'm, I promise I'm not. I think you're the best fans in baseball, okay? This summer, we were at Bush Stadium. We had an experience, and the, I was ready to write the Bushes. Whoever owns it, I was like, man, you have the, be- the best fans in baseball, okay? You know who has perhaps the worst fans in baseball? Dodger fans, okay? No, no, no. We are not a classy bunch of people, okay? Like, I remember, uh, like, Mark McGuire was, he left you guys, became, like, a hitting coach for the Dodgers, and there was, like, a fight. And Mark McGuire is an old man. He's out there swinging at, like, 20-year-olds. And it's like... Man, it's the Dodgers. That's, he was a good, you know, ugh. all right? But, but this situation, like, went full tilt in, the, like, 2011, uh, where Dodgers, they, they've always had this, like, not classy fan base thing, like, just really rowdy group of people, but it became dangerous, it became tragic, and it became a terrible story in 2011. There was a man called Brian Stowe. Uh, it, was a, it was opening day at Dodger Stadium, uh, Dodgers-Giants, which is a big rivalry on the West Coast. Brian Stowe is, is in, at the game with his kids in Giants gear, and he's rooting, and he's, you know, being, you know, being a Giants fan. He's a baseball game, and two fans got annoyed with him, had enough of it. And so as Brian Stowe is walking out at the end of the game, uh, these two fans beat him into a coma his, with his kids there. Awful. I mean, it was just a story that gripped the city. It was either wanted posters everywhere. They caught the guys, and the guys went to trial, and they faced some kind of justice. Uh, Brian was in a vegetative coma, and no one was sure he'd ever come out of it. Why? Why? That's not an information problem. 
all right? It's not like, hey, it's just a game. You know, have you ever noticed how the players don't have the same intensity about rivalries that the fans do? Like, you know, Buster Posey, like, they, these guys are friends, right? Like, do you, ever, do you ever feel a little silly doing this? No, it's not an information problem. It's we have attached ourselves to something, and this is just what we do. And maybe alcohol was involved, but, man, it went too far. We have seen how attachments can go badly. We have seen loved ones get sucked into things and just go way too far. The Jesus movement fundamentally says, what if, what if you could attach yourself to a life-giving movement? What if not just a life-giving movement, but a person? I am the vine, you are the branches. Church history is replete with stories of people dying for their enemies. Take Philip. Remember Philip? He's from Bethsaida. Do you know where Bethsaida is? No, it's like Bland, Missouri, okay? Do you know where Bland, Missouri is? It's the sticks, all right? Who named towns in Missouri, right? They're just like, hey, we're in truth in advertising. There's not much here. Bland, Missouri. It's a real town, all right? He's from Bethsaida, middle of nowhere. But what does he do after trusting Jesus and growing in the church? He heads to Aeropolis, which is like, again, the Vegas of the Greco-Roman world. He heads to Aeropolis, and there's a gate going into Aeropolis, as church history tells us, which you have to be careful sometimes with church history. All right, but there's a gate to Domitian. And, the, and church history tells us that when you walked through that gate, you were pledging your allegiance to Domitian, who was an emperor. Philip would every day walk up to that gate stand there, pray, and then walk around the gate to go into the city. He was saying, I won't give my allegiance. Crucifixion, sometimes what would happen is they would crucify your family in front of your eyes. So Philip, in an act of defiance, is getting crucified. What does he say to his family, though, as they're dying? He says, don't worry. I once saw my rabbi feed 5,000 people. We'll get through this. That's the power of loving attachments. And that's way better. That's way better than living your life in the desert trying to fight your will. Love. love. Once we have love, we're off to the races. And if we fuel that love with joy, we don't have to ask ourselves like, man, why was I joyful at first as a Christian? And now why have I just lost all that steam? Did I do something wrong? See, love and joy, when we orient ourselves around that, that Jesus knows that's how people work. And that's the metaphor he's given us. So over the next couple of weeks, we're saying, who are we as a church? How do we cultivate this kind of love? And how do we help this build a group identity so that as things are coming at us, we know who we are and we know how to respond? Well, thing number one, as we wrap up, uh, if anybody is selling you a quick fix, just walk away, okay? There's no such thing as a quick fix. We want to train ourselves to spontaneously love our enemies. I don't spontaneously love my enemies. When people say mean things to me, I, I'm like, all right, I'm working out my defense in my head. I'm ready to go. Here we go. So if you say this, I'll say this. We're ready to go, right? That is not spontaneous love for your enemies. But we, we, the church is the training ground to where we learn how to spontaneously love our enemies, through joy. Right? How can we experience joy when we're suffering? 
don't minimize the suffering. We're fully present as life is happening. But we want to cultivate joy in the midst of all these things. How do we be people who spontaneously love? We have to train for it. And just like, I mean, I've said this a million times, nobody in here could run the post-Christmas marathon in like 10 minutes. Hey, guys, in 10 minutes, meet me out there. We're just going to run a marathon. No, no, no. We train for it. We train for it. We, we, we work our way toward it. That's fundamentally what church is. It's a training ground to help us be people who have Christ formed in us. And that he just starts bearing fruit like crazy, fruit that lasts through us. So our North Star of what, what does that mean and how are we going to do it, we're going to talk about in the coming weeks. But here's just a snippet of it. Compass. Uh, we want to be people who connect. We can't grow on our own. We, we, we need to be connected to life-giving relationships. We need to have these helpful attachments, right? So like the difference between a cult and like a religion sometimes is, all the time is truth, but sometimes it's just the fruit of what you're doing, all right? We want to connect ourselves to, a, to truth, to Jesus, and we really think we'll be off to the races. I just sound like I'm telling you guys to join a cult. I'm not telling you to join a cult. Orient. How do we, we want to be people who orient our lives around scripture and truth, so again, remember, we're not saying you don't need content. You absolutely need content. I've given my life to make sure the content is good, all right? Like, we need content. We want to be people who orient our lives around truth. But if we aren't connected, if we don't have that love, like Jesus said, if you remain in my love, you'll bear fruit for it. I just need to know the Bible. I just need to know the Bible. If I know the Bible, I'm good to go. And maybe there will be right decisions, but really just right doctrine. No, we want to be people who orient our lives around this this. This book, not just so you're coming here, hearing people teach it to you, but you yourselves know how to feed yourselves through and orient your lives and meet Jesus through his word. Mission. When Jesus, we talked about the second part of the Great Commission earlier, of like teach them to obey all, but there's a first part. Go make disciples. Your neighbors are going to hell. Do you care? How do we be on mission? Practices. That's the idea we talked about earlier. We're not going to do a marathon tomorrow. We're going to train for it. Well, how do we train for it? What are those practices? Like simplicity or silence and solitude. By the way, this is a total aside just from my own life. Uh, for me, I will so many times start a book and then just recommend it to everybody and then like read it. I'm like, oh my gosh, I should, I should have read this whole book, right? Happens a lot. I'm, I'm growing, all right? But I had, I had read one of Dallas's Willard's books, Spirit of the Disciplines, I'd read parts of it a million times. I just, over the last couple weeks, read the whole thing. And, like, there's a part I missed, and I'm like, dude, you should have put this in, like, the foreword. This is super important. Here's what he says about practices. Practices, it's not saying, hey, do all these practices for all your life. All right, so now for the rest of your life, you've got to live in simplicity. You've got to all the time do silence and solitude. He's like, hey, if there's a season in your life where you're, not hearing from God, do some silence and solitude. If there's a season in your life where you're really materialistic and greedy, do some simplicity. And it's like, dude, that would have been real. I mean, last year I, I owned two pair of pants because I'm like, hey, simplicity. He said simplicity. And uh, I was like, dude, that would have been really good to know before I got rid of all of these clothes. <laughs> Read the book, all right? That's just a life lesson. Apprentices. There are people in this room who are better at certain things than I am. There are people in this room who are better at certain things than you are. What if we went to them and said, can you, can you teach me how to be a patient dad? Can you, pe can you teach me how to be a joyful man? You, can you actually, can you teach me how to like fix a dishwasher? Doing life together, apprenticing, all right? And we're a multi-generational church. So, hey, there's 
older people with younger people, younger people with older people. This is a great way to do that. Story. How long have you been going to this church? A rhetorical. Rhetorical question. Sorry. I just, rhetorical question. How long have you been coming to this church? Does anybody here know your story? Does anybody here know what you've walked through? Do people here know just that, that, that thing, that story that's popping up in your mind that if people knew this, man, I could really be misunderstood. Do people know you? We need to share our stories. How do we move from an I to a we? We share our stories. We be known. It's super important. And social justice. That's all we'll say about that. <laughs> kidding, kidding. Again, the, the mantra for that is there are a lot of things that happen in the name of social justice that are not biblical, okay? Lots. So not all social justice is biblical, but all biblical justice is social. It's not just about fixing my life and then going and living in the wilderness. It's about loving my neighbor, being, being people who create shalom in the world, people who are like moving toward justice, who are loving their neighborhoods. How do we, that's the social part of it, right? How do we do this together, all right? This is our North Star. This is what we're aiming at. This is what we're trying to, these are, if we think, hey, we can just keep cultivating these seven things. This is how we, you know, this is what we think discipleship looks like. And some of you are like, well, I've already got all this. I have it in the bag. I'm super connected. I'm on mission. Look, I don't know about you, but I leak, all right? There are seasons in my life where, like, you know, I'm doing something really well, and then just, it, just all the wheels fall off, right? That's why we want to be a community where we're known, right? You know, everybody is impressive from a distance. But when you really start to be known, we bring ourselves back down to earth. My wife doesn't laugh at me, ever, all right? Because we know each other. And, and, you know, and she, you know, needs a better sense of humor, but totally kidding. That came out how I didn't want it to. <laughs> Sorry, babe. Um, I am funny. Uh, gosh. We need North Stars, because to quote Mike Tyson, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face, all right? What are we doing with transformation? What does transformation look like? This is our plan. So we're going to be laying this out in the next couple of weeks. We're going to be talking about, hey, here's how we're pursuing this together. Here's, what this, here's the environments where we can do this. We're, we have some retreats that we're working on planning, because we want to say, hey, some of this stuff, we need to teach it across the semester. Some of it, we want to say, hey, uh, let's like give you like just the shotgun approach, you know, instead of 12 hours, we'll do 12 hours over a weekend and you get to finally experience a retreat with Pastor Marshall, which is life changing. Yeah, the woo, we, there have been people in this room who have been on a retreat with Pastor Marshall and they're wooing. So like you get to experience that. We've got some of those things planned out. That's the hope. That's the future. But Dallas Willard once said that he says the job of everyone, everyone should approach their pastor and say, what's your plan for spiritual transformation in my life? That's these next few weeks. That's what we want to talk about. By God's grace, we're going to be a people who pursue transformation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for grace. God, thank you that you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. You are the vine. God, I pray that we would be people. We would be a people who abide that we would, we would not be people who think, if I just can get more information, if I can just make better decisions, then, then I'll be off to the, right, the races. But God, if we abide in you, if we abide in your love, 
That's where real change happens. So help us be people who abide. In Jesus' name, amen. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.